All right, my name is uh, Tim Barker. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my delight to get to speak with you this morning uh, about this text of Scripture that Allison just read and get a feel for the Gospels and how they relate for us. So you see up on the, the board here kind of an intimidating thought, perhaps, around thinking about Skeptic Sunday. Okay, what are we, what are we talking about here? Well, we're going to spend our time together this morning just thinking around honest objections that come up about the Bible. And one of those in particular this morning is answered by this text in Hebrews, and we're going to think a little bit more on that which is really going to be about the reliability of the Bible. Can it be trusted? Is the story of Jesus and the gospel something that we can honestly still believe in 2017? Is this something that requires our attention, or is this something that's irrelevant that we can totally get rid of? Maybe you're thinking, I came into a Christian church. This is going to be the most biased presentation I've ever heard in my life. Well, let me be clear. No, I, I mean, I do believe this. I'm not going to deny that. But I'm going to honestly look at these questions. Because this is a doubt that we all have. Maybe you showed up this morning and you think, you know what, everyone in here, I don't know what they show up for, but I have my own view, my own thoughts on this. And I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not sure about the gospel. I'm not sure any of this makes a ton of sense. People come in with those questions. And Seven Mile Road is a place where you can come in with doubts. You can ask honest questions and you'll be engaged. This is an opportunity where you can say, hey, I don't know what this is all about, but I'd like to hear some more. And that honestly is a true heart of a true skeptic. Someone who wants to approach a problem, ask questions honestly, and then is going to receive answers and think about those answers and engage with those in an honest way. So you may come in here and you may feel like it's a different context for you. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you haven't been here uh, very often, or you've been here a lot of times, and you've probably still had doubts in your mind at times around the gospel. You've thought probably, uh, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe nobody else thinks this way. Uh, I don't know if you ever find yourself in a context where you don't really fit in. I, I was thinking about situations where I felt really off my, my game and really out of place. Uh, one of those was in uh, China. I was in China, and I was teaching English, very short-term kind of thing, and, and working with some students. And I was talking to them about uh, freedom of the press. I was talking to them about freedom of the press in communist China. And it may not have been the best idea of my life, but I was doing that. And you can imagine how these students just could not get their mind around the legitimacy of that concept. No matter any way I approach this, they thought, this is the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why in the world would that be a good idea? You're going to just wreck a whole nation if you let people print whatever they possibly want in the newspaper. Another context where I found myself completely alone in my doubts, and, and no one else could agree with where I was coming from, was uh, in a pub in the UK. I was playing darts, good, good pastime there. And uh, I was talking to some, some people there around the Second Amendment of all things, that we have in our Constitution here, and the right to bear arms. Okay, controversial subject. It's okay. Take a deep breath. It'll be okay. So you can imagine there's an argument. Even as Americans, we can go, I see some use. Maybe there's something to say. I don't know. Maybe we need stricter this, stricter that. But in the UK, they had no concept of why you needed a gun for any reason in the world. It seemed like the most foreign concept in the world. So I'm there trying to explain, hey, I'm not even a gun guy at all, to be honest. I've barely even touched one. And yet, I'm going, there's an argument here. There's a different way to think than you thought about your whole life. And as we approach that and you have a conversation, it doesn't hurt to be playing darts in a pub, that kind of thing. But in these different contexts, you approach something. And sometimes you think you're the only one doubting this question. You're the only one that can come from a different perspective. And I want to tell you, when we look at God, the Gospels and Jesus, you're not the only one in that boat. So we've all heard objections. We've maybe even said them ourselves. We think, isn't the Bible historically unreliable? Isn't it just a collection of legends? We think the Bible, I mean, that's full of contradictions. We've all heard about that. It, it can't really be something that you believe. Or we think the Gospels were maybe made up by Jesus' followers 
as an incredible power play in order to deceive others and take over the, the, the hope of the, the future church. So these are serious concerns. These objections, they may come to your mind. They may be things that you've heard and you've, you've watched and heard sound bites of from time to time. But I want to say that those are honest objections that have to be considered. And really, I'm going to be the first to say that I've wrestled with this. I question these things. I wonder with doubt at times, is this believable? But I want to take it one step further. I'm going to up the ante on you a little bit here. All right, those are all reasonable objections. But I want to say it's even more critical. If you don't hold to the reliability of the Gospels, you really can't have Jesus. You can't say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, he's a great guy to hang around, maybe has some good bumper sticker phrases. You have to reject him entirely because there's nothing reliable about the story of Jesus. Your only access to know who Jesus is and the importance that he seems to have had over all of history and over people still in this day and age is based on the testimony of the Gospels themselves. So from that, we have to say this is pretty important stuff. I mean, this is worth the time on the first Sunday of October to think through what is Jesus, who is Jesus and what are the claims that are made about him. He's a significant figure of history. He's a significant figure that we only have access through the written word that we have in the Gospels. So Allison has read some words from uh, the book of Hebrews for us, and there's a, a really simple outline that's laid out for us here, right? In uh, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, it points to an idea of how we know this is a reliable message. It says, first, it was declared at first by the Lord. Secondly, it was attested to us by those who heard. And three, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you got three basic arguments. First one, it's told to us by the Lord, all right? That's, if you don't believe it, that's kind of a circular argument, right? That doesn't help you with anything. The Lord declared it. So what? I could say I'm the strongest man in the world. You're going to wonder about if there's any proof. What's the empirical evidence? You're going to say, hey, let's head to the bench right now. I'm going to get about three steps that way, and I go, all right, all right, I was just kidding. All right, I'm out. Not the strongest guy in the world. All right, so a claim in and of itself by a person doesn't prove anything. But then think about that second part. What if, what if actually I have been the strongest man in the world, and I've been to all these strongman competitions all over the world, and maybe I've been to stuff in Cambodia and the Czech Republic, and I've really shown my strength, and now there's a bunch of people who are attesting to that. People who will say, no, no, I know it's hard to believe. This guy's actually really strong. I've seen him. I'm telling you about him. That changes the game a little bit, right? It sort of says all these other people now have a claim that this guy's telling the truth. That changes your perspective on someone's maybe wild claim like that. The third point then, though, about these kind of miracles and attesting things, you know what? You can kind of just put those aside for the moment because if you don't believe the testimony of others, you're probably going to have all kinds of doubts about these miraculous and uh, wonder events that have happened that are recorded in the Scripture. They're going to be another question to answer. But really, we're going to focus this morning just looking at the idea of these attested witnesses. There are other people who are saying, Jesus really lived this way. Jesus died and he rose again. And this is the story. And we're on the line telling you that this is true. That's a whole other game for us, for us to think through. So to frame the majority of our time together, we're going to be looking at uh, whether you're a skeptic of the gospel or whether a firm believer in the gospel, asking the question to think just on that second point that comes out of our text in Hebrew. What about these attested witnesses about the claims of Jesus? The foundation of the Christian belief is that God exists, that we know what he's, uh, that he's spoken to us, and that we know what he said. So when we think through that chain of events, we have to come back to knowing what God has said to us about the person of Jesus. And I'm going to boil down our time to talk about just the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, and John. And as we think about these texts, they tell us the story of Jesus from beginning to end, and they're the part that we have to come to and consider this morning. So if you're a true skeptic, someone who's looking for answers honestly, those are the Gospels that you have to hold, in, hold it before you and make your decision about Jesus. But I want to contend kind of this morning that the eyewitness testimony recorded in the biblical Gospels do compel you and compel everyone to consider the implications of Jesus' claim as the way of salvation. So these eyewitness testimonies compel you to read the Gospels and consider what Jesus has said. You can't say they're irrelevant. You can't dismiss them as legends. You can't say they're inaccurate and go on your merry way. You have to legitimately look at the claims of the Gospels and consider it. Or I could say it more simply this way. The Gospels are true. Now what will you do? The Gospels are true. So now what will you do? So let me get to that point. Let's, let's walk through it together thinking about what this difference is. Because again, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher who was misunderstood. He was a man claiming to be God, presenting a way of salvation from evil, offering a way to God with a promise of an afterlife. That's a, quite a claim. That's something to go, okay, can I really hold on to this? What is the testimony that tells me that this is someone that I can believe? So we're going to look at really kind of two ways of thinking about this. First of all, we're going to think about uh, interrogating these eyewitness accounts. Let's interrogate those. Really think through, who is this that's giving us this eyewitness understanding? And then secondly, we're going to spend time uh, not just interrogating uh, the eyewitness accounts, but also taking a closer look and really trying to decide about the written record. Can we inspect the written testimony and decide that it is accurate, that we can see the gospel witness that came through in the written record and still have faith in that? So let's get started. To start by interrogating the eyewitness accounts that we have. As, as Hebrews points to, it talks about there being people who have attested to what Jesus said and did. So the first question we would ask, all right, if we stick them in one of those cool rooms with mirrors on it, I haven't been in one myself, I don't really have any interest in going behind one of those, but you know the room, right? We all see it, that's on all the shows. And we start to ask questions. One of the first questions would be, okay, what did you see? Okay, tell me, what is it that you actually saw? So in the Gospels, recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have witnessed events. Okay? They're telling us what they saw. The genre or style of the, of the biblical Gospels are not legend. They're not far-flung tales of big ideas that are beyond belief. It isn't like the story of Achilles or the tales of Paul Bunyan or even the Little Mermaid. We have Gospel in a form of Greco-Roman biography called bioi. This Style and form is a legitimate, normal, human way of writing for the time. So the thing that makes it different or foreign to us when we read the, read the Gospels and we think, okay, this is like crazy stuff. What's going on in there? That's because of our distance in culture, in language, in time from that period. But these aren't any stranger of writings than reading the TB12 method, What Happened, or Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs. They're just as normal works of literature. So as we think about what these words are, we have to think, okay, what is actually being told to us in the gospel? We have a real person who's being presented to us as the main character of a biography. It's Jesus. The stories are about Jesus. So you read the gospels, and then what is throughout? You have witnessed events, okay? The eyewitnesses are present throughout Jesus's life. They're noting geographical locations. They're telling of his public teachings. They're noting opponents and their arguments. They're citing direct teaching that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. They're, hearing, they're, they're seeing healings in a public setting. They're seeing teaching in public settings. There's individuals who are named. 
uh, throughout the account, sometimes anonymous, but many of them are named. There's occasionally scenes where maybe a small group of, say, one to four people are together. But the vast majority of these scenes throughout the gospel are with hundreds of people, all witnessing events, sometimes thousands of people in an event. So we're not talking about someone's kind of crazy idea of what's happening and they're kind of describing this weird dream they've had or something else. We're talking about people who are describing everyday life events with so many witnesses around, so many people. And the Gospels lead up to the death of Jesus and a strongly attested account of his self-resurrection, all with lots of people all around seeing what he's done. So my point in saying this, that they're witnessed events, is just to think about what is actually being told to us in the Gospels. Like it's not... Uh, like you get the, the backside view of what's happening in heaven necessarily. It's not that you're getting uh, some behind-the-scenes thoughts of all the characters and what they're thinking and how they treat each other. No, you have recorded history of what happened out in the events of life, out on earth. But not only is it witness events, we also know from these witnesses, they've been following Jesus from the beginning. From the beginning. This is a concept that we don't really have in our current writing, right? When you want to write a book and you, you know, you're a politician and you're going to run, you hire somebody who's a really good writer, you either make them a ghostwriter or they get to be the little name on the front of the book, and then you tell your story. They probably just met you, maybe they had a few interviews with you leading up to that, and then they kind of do their research and they write your book. It's not how it was written in the ancient world. When someone went to write a biography, you probably followed that guy around for a really long time. When you consider the, the great Roman historians and what they've done, they were oftentimes right in the battle with the generals, following along with them seeing every day what they did from the beginning as they made their rise to power, like a Julius Caesar or something like that, and they eventually see, oh, now look what he's done. I've been with him from the beginning. Now I see what his heights are. He was hired to kind of do that work. Similarly, in the life of Jesus, we have people who were with him from the beginning, who literally were the first disciples to come with him, and they are now telling this. They've seen the progression. They've had things play out in front of them. So Mark and John, as two gospel examples, definitely have this. They have this element to them of early... Uh, records from the beginning that they're looking at it. But even in Luke, he's a great ancient historian. He actually says in, in the second verse of his, his book about uh, the idea that there were those who were beginning eyewitnesses, people who started with Jesus, who are now still telling the story about him. And then as you look at the Gospels, you have to think, okay, these read like stories of people's real life, okay? What that means is, is it's not like the characters in the story, like, okay, if I were writing my own Gospel, I would look really awesome in it. I would be like the center of attention every time, doing the right thing every time, knowing the answer every time. Oh, yes, Jesus, I have the answer on that one. But that's not how the Gospels read. The disciples are always shown realistically. They miss the point. They misunderstand. They do the wrong thing. There's parts of memory where, you know, we did this, and this is how it played out. And then, oh, later we understood when we looked back, oh, that made sense. Right? That's how we all live our real life. There's these moments and events in history when they don't make sense to us at the moment, but then when you look back on them, you go, oh, that's what was happening there. I get it now. That was what led me to my next job, my next school, met my wife, whatever happened from there. Those kind of connections. That's what's in the Gospels. So we have a very believable testimony that's presented to us from both witnessed accounts and from the beginning. But you might be asking, how can we know that these are reliable witnesses? Well, there's two things to come to and kind of hammer on. I've touched on a little bit. Two reasons why these are reliable witnesses to consider the gospel accounts. Number one, because we have direct sources involved, people who have been in these events. And then secondly, because we have named witnesses. So these two points give us a lot of confidence in considering this. All right, so let's think about the direct sources. All right, Matthew and John were immediate disciples of Jesus. 
They walked the walk with him. They saw him do the great things. They were with him. And then they wrote down their own Gospels. All right? That's pretty direct knowledge. You can't get much closer than that unless it's an autobiography, right? So that's how close you get. Luke is a proper historian who did significant uh, research on his own with direct sources. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. And then Mark was a guy who wrote based on Peter's testimony. And I'll show you how we know that as well, a couple ways that that comes out. Uh, but he was going direct with Peter and probably anywhere, right? We got jokes about Peter. We know Peter has a lot to do with Jesus and heaven and all these things. We know Peter was a big deal. So those are the apostles that we go to. And we can think through, okay, there's external testimony to say, these guys wrote the books, they're believable, you should listen to them. But there's also internal evidence that drives us to know these were the main sources. So I want to talk about uh, a little bit of an ancient Roman, uh, Greco-Roman style of writing. So don't fall asleep yet, okay? Uh, it's about, it's called an inclusio technique. The concept is it's a bookend, all right? When you have a primary source, uh, you want to bring that witness to bear throughout your work but you want to show that he's your primary witness in your account. So what you do is you bookend him. You put him at the very beginning of your story, and then you have him show up at the end in both significant ways. And that points to who is the primary witness. Now you might not say, okay, I don't know if that makes sense. Think about kind of what we do in legal proceedings, or at least what we see on TV, right? We see people, they present their strong, their strong witness, and then they're referring to whatever that strong piece was again in their closing. There's that concept of reminding you up front with my strong point, and then hammering it home at the end. A little bit of a precursor. I'm going to kind of do that here this morning as we talk as well, so you can see that. All right? So as we do this, that's what these gospel writers did. So when you think about uh, the gospel of Mark, he introduces Peter in the first chapter as the first disciple that's called to Jesus. Then in Mark 16, the last chapter, he's closing, talking about the resurrection and people needing to go to Peter and relay this message to him. Peter is the primary source of Mark. We look at the gospel of Luke. It's a little bit more nuanced, okay? The first two chapters, we have two women, Mary and Elizabeth, that are, that are taking place, sharing some testimony of what's happened. Then the first eight chapters are kind of pretty normal stuff. You can see this in the other Gospels. At chapter 8, something really interesting happens. Luke starts to cite three women in his testimony. Now, again, remember in that day and age, a woman's testimony was not counted as a whole lot. It was pretty much discounted. And here's Luke introducing three named women into his story, right at chapter 8. And then he closes in Luke 24 by citing these same three women again as having the resurrection appearance. Now, why that's significant is Luke had drawn on some new sources. Clearly, that's what's happened. He's a great historian. He's gone to these women who are still giving their names out, still citing, no, I was there. It's crazy. Believe me. Let me tell you this. They're talking around, and Luke, as a historian, a little bit progressive, we might even say, to say, hey, that's evidence. I'm going to add that in here. Yes, they're women. Maybe their, their testimony wouldn't have counted in court at the day. I'm going to add that in because that's significant. They're still talking about this. And when you think about that, right, that doesn't add any credibility to Luke's argument. If anything, it questions his argument. Why would he choose to find women who would support his case when their testimony usually wasn't counted for a whole lot? Well, the reason is because is they were factually actually there, and they're still walking around telling people the story. So they're going, okay, I'm going to add them in. Last point just to prove this is in the Gospel of John. The first disciples to meet Jesus in the Gospel of John, John, what happened to Peter? Well, I'm, I'm the guy writing this Gospel. Let me start with my story, okay? So he moves his story right up the front. Peter's right behind him, but John's the first disciple to meet Jesus. And then how does he close it out in the last chapter? Peter, the big important Peter, goes, hey, what about this guy John? Okay, starts asking about John. Finds out about John from Jesus, and then John says, okay, 
let me be clear, I'm the guy that's writing this book. I'm that disciple who's been all around with Jesus, carrying through all these pages. I'm the guy writing this gospel. So at each point, they point to who their primary source is, and they mark them out so that you can't miss them. But then, not only do they have primary sources that are to be trusted, but they also have some named witnesses. Have you ever been reading through the Gospels and wonder about all these names? Some of them are hard to pronounce. It's really fun to ask somebody to read that up here on Sunday and the like, crazy names in the story, okay? Uh, some of them are quite odd, like Cleopas and Jairus. They're not like top baby names this year for some reason. I don't know what that's about. Uh, but, I mean, they're strange. But why are there these strange names in the gospel? Why are people named so significantly? The idea is this is an authenticating action. These individuals allowed their names to be cited, and they're still testifying to the day of these writings that these events had happened. People knew them. They knew who this Cleopas guy was, and they could go and talk to him, and they could hear his testimony, and they'd believe it. That's why it was written down in Luke. That's why we can hold to it. So, there's definitely accounts where we don't have the character mentioned, especially in healings. Healings are interesting, right? So in a lot of the healings of Jesus, there's not a named character. I think, why is that? Okay, well, you know, if you got healed, you might not be one to say, hey, I was a guy that had leprosy and my skin was falling off me. You want to you talk? I was that guy. No, 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 you're just going on with your life. Then there's a few accounts where that healed person is actually named. That means that person is actually outing themselves and being clear. No, no, no. I was that guy. I was the guy that Jesus healed. Jesus healed my daughter. Jesus healed my servant. That's who I am, and bringing that to full attention. So, again, the gospel sources read as credible works of history, and any ancient record of the day uh, with this kind of evidence, evidence would be typically received. There wasn't a whole lot of question. But we might still ask, as skeptical 21st century Bostonians, asking the question, okay, but really, but like really, why, why should I believe this? Why should I come at this? We think there's probably a little angle in there somewhere. There's some reason why they might not hold to the, why this not might not be a believable story, right? So two things that we'll present to think around believing them as witnesses. First of all, we got to think about their motive, and then secondly, let's think about their martyrdom. Okay? So we think about their motive. Okay? This is like the the TV crime drama, right? You're watching that and you're like, okay, well, who was going to be the beneficiary on the insurance? Okay? They are probably the one who did it, right? Oh, or they had a fight. That's the reason. Let's go talk to the person you had that fight with. They're always looking for who had the incentive to take an action against someone. It's one of the most uh, straightforward ways of fraud detection. You know that? So if you look at like credit card fraud or insurance fraud, review fraud, anything like that, you try to figure out who benefits from telling a lie. Okay? If you work through a way backwards through who could benefit, it oftentimes leads you to a list of suspects to question whether or not it makes sense. And if any of this isn't connecting with you, I thought I'd quote the, uh, the contemporary cultural critic, uh, Megan Trainer. In her song, Lips Are Moving," if you're familiar, she says, uh, let's see if I get this right. If your lips are moving, if your lips are moving, if your lips are moving, then you're lion, 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 baby. So what she's pointing at, right, in this song and throughout, she, she's highlighting the fact that, okay, her boyfriend has a motive to lie and that she's trying to stay in relationship with her, the singer, and yet still have a cover up an illicit romance with another woman. That's a pretty well-known, established means of a reason and incentive to be deceitful, to lie, to hide that information. So we see that. It's, it's known today. It's known in all quarters, right? So the witness of the Gospels, then, we have to say, okay, did they have an incentive to lie? Okay? Think about their approach, Okay? They, they told their story, they made their claims without any personal gain incentive. They were not going to get rich or powerful, and they surely didn't. 
Instead, they were clearly ostracized, and it cost them a lot. They weren't finding pleasure, whether legitimate or illicit. No, they got danger and pain. That's what they got out of it. There's no way you can see them as gaining something in presenting the story of Jesus. They weren't like, oh, this would be great. Maybe I'll be like the king of the new church thing that's going to happen. No, they weren't like around very long to get away with it. They were in trouble right away, running for their lives in many cases. There's no reason that they would make this up because it didn't benefit them. And we all work in self-interest. And secondly, I talked about martyrdom, right? Just consider Jesus' 12 disciples. Okay, Judas took his own life. Takes us down to 11. There's 10 of them that died by some means of direct martyrdom, like crucifixion, beating and left to exposure, beheading, skinned alive, run through with a spear, stabbed, stoned, and clubbed in the head. Okay, so none of that sounds really like enticing, right? Then there was one last disciple, John. Okay, he died a natural death in old age, although he did have some kind of incident with boiling oil, it seems. Okay, so he was somehow put in boiling oil and then uh, put out to uh, exile as well. So you think about all those opportunities. There's an opportunity to recant and tell the truth in each of those, right? Like when they put the boiling pot of oil in front of you, you go, all right, guys, I'm just kidding. All right, this isn't actually the whole thing. We don't have to go this far. I'm out, right? You have the motivation or the opportunity to go, if this isn't legitimate, I'm stepping away. Now, of course, martyrdom doesn't prove that something's true, right? Anyone can die for something. Think about modern-day extremists, right? What martyrdom does isn't prove that something's true, but it does completely dismiss the motive of deception or disingenuousness. You might be dead wrong if you go to your death for a cause, but it means you're dead set on believing it, right? That's what it proves. So you could be wrong. That's, that's not really the test of martyrdom. We see extremists today who are willing to take their own life, take others' lives, and put themselves in the way, and they believe they're right. But no one can question whether or not they really believe it. Fair enough. They seem to really believe it. They're just still wrong. In this martyrdom of Jesus' disciples, look at the difference in how the force of this works in the incentive. They're not taking others' lives. They're merely telling what was done, and their lives are being taken from them. So it's a very different martyrdom. So there's no incentive for them to do that. And then as well, in, in losing their life, they're proving, look, this isn't some kind of manipulation, some big charade. This is the point when the gig stops, and I would get out of it at that point. So if we can believe these gospel witnesses, I think there's a strong argument to see it, right? You see what they were telling us, you see that they're reliable witnesses, and you see that they really had no motive to turn away from this. You have to say, okay, this is a legitimate story I should be thinking about. Okay, where do we go? So let's go to our second point. Not only are we interrogating these witnesses, and they seem to have held up, but you might have still a lingering question in your mind. Okay, but I'm not like asking these guys questions, right? They're not in front of us. We're only having access to them from the written record, right? We have to open up the Bible, we have to see what it says, and think about its implications. So you could be wondering, is that a reliable written testimony that we have in front of us? So there's two points I want to make about inspecting this written record. First of all, we want to talk about it being penned within the generation of the events happening. And then secondly, talk about the consistency of the transmission of this text, okay? So heavy-duty stuff, this chili brewing, we're all going to be good in here in a few minutes, but stick with me here for just a little bit more. This is a serious question. All right. We're saying the Gospels were written in a pretty close proximity to when Jesus lived and these things happened. This is an argument for authentication. Okay? They were written down in maybe only five to six decades, maybe up to nine or so, after the events themselves took place. So think about the written accounts of the Holocaust, World War II, 
these eyewitness accounts were published similarly in the 1980s, 1990s. You know, you still had accounts coming out of realistic events that happened at that time. Totally normal, total history. You could think of lots of reasons why it took a length of time to get out there. Now imagine you don't have a computer and you're writing this all by hand. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it could take a few decades to get down to this point. So they're very close to the events themselves so they can be believed. It's not like we're talking about these stories and, yeah, like thousands of years later, all of a sudden Jesus like was healing people and feeding people and then he rose from the dead. Oh, you know what? Maybe you can ride on a big blue ox. No, no, that's the kind of stuff that comes out of thousands of years. People moving so far away down the road in the story that they just start making up fanciful things. At this point, we're talking about 50, 60 years and people are starting to codify this in written form. You can't just start making stuff up. These people are still living. It's a contemporary story that has to be considered. And there was ample opportunity for people to discredit it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like your Facebook post goes out, and if you, like, don't check your phone, like, one particular day, then all of a sudden it's, like, gone, and you'll never know what ever happened, and all these other people have that truth about you. It's not like that. These people had years to consider this, to point out flaws, to say in a written record as well that this wasn't true. That's not what we see in the Gospels. There's not an objection to the events that are presented to us. And secondly, they're also not hearsay. I mean, again, going back to kind of what the events are about, they're about what Jesus said and did, okay? We're not talking about some kind of point of main dispute. We're just saying, look at what Jesus did, listen to what he said, and they're worth considering. This, this testimony was so vibrant in the time that uh, there's an early church father named Papias who was a young contemporary of the gospel writers, okay? He's probably like a teenager, young adult at the time the gospels were first getting penned. And he was saying... Really, I don't even need to refer to the written record because people are still walking around telling me the stories of Jesus directly. I'm hearing from people who are eyewitnesses of that. So there's this broad circulation of the stories of Jesus well into the time that the Gospels are being written. So we can believe this, this text because it's, it's well written within that time period that it was uh, happening. But then secondly, you might be asking, okay, but what about the textual integrity itself? Can I really believe what's written? So I'm going to touch on this as quickly as I can. I'd love to spend the rest of the day on this, to be honest with you, but you probably want to get going. So I'm going to touch on just the consistency of the whole, okay? There's four Gospels. What that points to is a primary character of Jesus in all of them as you interpret them. But as you think about those Gospels, there are differences between them. However, they are all about perspective and flavor of the author. So when you read the Gospels, you can see there's a different perspective to the original audience of how it's presented, and you have to think through uh, what that ind individual is saying and what they're getting to. So what that sometimes prompts us to, very quickly, is that there may be contradictions in the text. Have you heard that? It's a, it's a great way to go, yeah, chuck the Bible. Let's pay no attention to this. There's so many contradictions, you can't believe it. Okay, let's talk about contradictions. Again, we could spend all day talking about it, but let's, let's think about it, okay? So they're saying there's small contradictions or ways that these are differences. They can usually be understood as style. Maybe there's paraphrase that's happening. Oftentimes there's new terminology that's being presented. Sometimes there's a theological clarification that expands a particular account. Then if we think about the differences in sources, okay, if I'm listening to Peter, he was sitting on another side of the circle from where John was. They probably have a little bit of a different take on how that went down. Uh, additionally, you think around the differences about adding detail or abbreviating it, right? Sometimes you think for my audience, they need to hear this whole thing. Someone else is going to go, I mean, those guys are here, this is what's happening, the healing, okay, we move on. Real quick hit depending on your audience and what you're going for. Um, all those combination of factors are important. I'll leave it with you this way. Okay, could you say, uh, no one would actually say, I should say, uh, no one would actually say when you read David McCullough's 1776. Okay, if you read that 
and then you read Joseph J. Ellis's book, His Excellency George Washington. You don't read those two accounts and go, oh, I see they kind of vary on this. You know what? George Washington didn't exist. Like, you can't do that. It's an incredible leap, right? You can't say, okay, because this guy wrote about different things and didn't have the exact same detail that Ellis did about George Washington means George Washington doesn't exist or he's not a reliable person. That'd be ridiculous. You'd say, no. McCullough is writing about 1776. He's focused on one year. He has lots of characters he has to cover throughout. He's touching on Washington. He's telling him it's an accurate portrayal, but he's not telling you every detail. Ellis is focused in on George Washington, telling you everything there is to know about his life and what's happening, spending great detail to work through that. You'd be crazy to think that because there's some difference in those parallel accounts written for different purposes by different men, that they would some way not be telling the same story about a historical person of George Washington. Similarly, in the Gospels, we know difference of author and difference of audience would easily move you to write slightly different accounts, not contradictions. In, in any cases, we're looking at different viewpoints, different purposes. We could go on forever. That's my, my quick answer for you to think through that. Then finally, ending with strong preservation. We have this in copies. The copies can be, can be believed. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have complete New Testaments, full 27 books that go back to the 300 ADs, or about only 200 years after these events were written. That's pretty close in ancient terms. There are 33 fragmentary or partial papyri that date back to the 200s AD in amazing condition. So we know what the text of the scripture was. Actually, this consistency in what we have in all these copies of the New Testament, up to 95% of the contents, 95%, like better than some of us scored in like anything in school, right? 95%. That 5% margin, we're talking about spelling errors, transposition, where you switch the words back and forth, talking about errors of sight and errors of hearing, right? If somebody's reading it to you, you kind of go, oh, you do this, or you look and you forget which line you're on and you copy it. It's very, very understandable the slight variances that we have in that 5% uh, for the majority of that. So the Gospels really are true. You have a clear Gospel testimony that's presented to you from eyewitness accounts, and we have a reliable written record to understand that. So, unfortunately, you can't just dismiss the Bible. You can't say, this isn't reliable, it's a legend, it's not true, it contradicts itself. It's really strong in its trustworthiness, as we look through this briefly. So it holds up under historical scrutiny and reasoning. So, if it's that reliable and you have access to it, as a 21st century modern to postmodern Bostonian, we believe in hearing a person out, right? That's only the right thing to do. You would never cut off somebody's view and say, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't believe in what you were selling or peddling or thinking. How rude, how intolerant. So how can we do that with Jesus? We have to come to the scriptures and say, let me hear it. Let me hear from him genuinely. Let me hear what he's saying. So the gospels are true. What will you do? So it's easy to hear a media soundbite, hear a classroom lecture, even a, read, read a small critical book and think that there's no reason to believe the Gospels are reliable. But today, I think as we've walked through this, interrogating the witnesses, thinking around these details, you have to say there's a reason to give them a hearing. So if you're, skept so if you're a skeptic who doubts this established viewpoint, it's your time to interact with this. You have to think through, through it. So I can say it like this. You can determine that you're not going to believe Jesus and you're not going to believe the Gospels. But you have to do that by putting yourself not as a skeptic who has honest questions and seeking honest answers. You have to say, I'm a judge. I'm the one who knows better than everybody else. I don't care what the evidence shows. I believe what I want to believe. And I don't think many of us want to make that claim. We hear the arrogance. We hear the, 
vicious cycle of interpretation and that, that you can't actually be true, right? So if you're going to actually have to consider the claims of Jesus, then what do you do? You need to open up the scriptures and think, what is Jesus saying? So I'm going to put this out to you. If you want to honestly engage with what Jesus has said and done, maybe in a new way and think through this, I invite you to take a Luke challenge, all right? So five weeks from today, we're going to have another Sunday like this where we consider an honest claim about the gospel and think through that objection together and think through that. In the meantime, over these next five weeks, I encourage you to read five chapters a week from the Gospel of Luke. If you have one week, it'll be a little shorter. Get up through those 24 weeks, 24 chapters in those five weeks. And then come back here to Seven Mile Road and let's talk about that next objection that's still hanging in your mind. I challenge you to do that. You'd hear from Jesus' account. And what we've talked about today would bring you to a whole other understanding of where that is. So I challenge you to think through that. If you want to come and ask questions in the meantime, come back over Sundays. We'd love to have you. Otherwise, we'll see that first Sunday in, in November after reading Luke. And let's go through it again. Let's think about that next objection.